Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. Simon Jenkins described the Georgian kings not as monarchs, but as princelings, who came to power not by the sword or politics, but merely descent from a distant Protestant mistress. They were mostly bewigged, powdered non-entities who couldn't even control their own children, nor say boo to a goose. But the new German king faced a perilous threat from the moment he stepped on British shores. The shadow of the Jacobites was widening. The foreigner would need to rely heavily upon his new British statesman to ensure this new Hanoverian was here to stay. This is George I. George was born in Hanover on the 28th of May, 1660. His father was Ernest Augustus, the Duke of Braunschweig-Lunebourg, within the Holy Roman Empire. His mother was Sophia of the Palatinate, granddaughter of James I of England and sixth of Scotland. George was their eldest son and heir to his father's German territories. He resembled his father, he grew up to be medium height with striking blue, bulbous eyes. He was often described as shy and unimaginative. Trials and tribulations in his early adult life made him a suspicious, distrustful character. According to a contemporary, he had a heavy countenance and showed little signs of animation. He was considered stiff and cold in manner. A natural hesitation rendered him slow in speech and thought. His favourite activities were campaigning and hunting. Due to the amount of time he spent outside, he was often sunburned. It was noted by his peers that he could have passed for a Spaniard. George's uncle, and later father-in-law, the Duke of Sella, arranged for George to drill a company. He then accompanied him on campaign in 1675, at the tender age of 15 during the Dutch War against Louis XIV's War of Expansion. George took part in the Siege of Maastricht in 1676 and was given independent command by the age of 17. In 1683, George served in the Great Turkish War in Hungary. He was noted for his bravery and continued campaigning into the 1690s. Three of his younger brothers died in battle he himself was nearly killed at the Battle of Neerwinden in 1693 against the French. George's insistence on frontline fighting consolidated his reputation as a true warrior. In 1692, George's father, Ernest Augustus, was made an electorate with the imminent formation of a single Hanoverian state. George became the heir. Hanover was now one of the nine electorates of the Holy Roman Empire, a loose, united assemblage of territories presided over by the elected emperor. Hanover's frontiers lacked strong defences and was always vulnerable to attack, particularly by the French, and dependent on the size of its army. Hanover's defence would remain George's number one priority throughout his life. In 1682, George married Sophia Dorothea of Sella, his first cousin. It was purely diplomatic. 
despite the union providing a healthy annual income, it would prove to be immensely turbulent. George's mother was originally against it and looked down on Sophia's low-born mother. In addition, Sophia herself was utterly unimpressed with George. She had proclaimed that she would not marry the pig snout. Sophia herself was described as empty-headed. Nevertheless, she gave birth to George's first child, George Augustus, in the autumn of 1683, and a daughter also called Sophia Dorothea in 1687. Yet the couple had already become estranged. George had taken mistresses, most notably Milusina von der Schulenburg. The estranged Sophia soon turned her attention elsewhere, making the acquaintance of Swedish Count Hans Christoph von Königsmark. As the estranged couple became less discreet about their affairs, their families urged them both to desist, to avoid scandal. They refused. Milizina would even accompany George at official functions, and gave birth to three of George's illegitimate children. George's mother was less than impressed with Milizina, commenting that one would scarcely believe that she had captivated my son. When George was away, Sophia became even less discreet. Together, they secretly forged plans for Sophia's escape from Hanover. They would send love letters to each other, in which Sophia would mock her husband. Her greatest wish was for George to die in battle. Most embarrassingly, Sophia would often make unfavourable comparisons of George in the bedroom. In 1694, a love letter was intercepted by George's father, Ernest Augustus. The transgressions would stop. The electorate could no longer afford for such disparaging letters to be sent, risking humiliating information to be leaked to the public. A plan was hatched to eliminate her lover. Allegedly, a forged note beckoned Christoph to Sophia's bedroom. He was ambushed and murdered. His body dumped in the Lina River. His assassins were paid 150,000 talents for the deed by Ernest Augustus, 100 times the annual salary of the highest paid minister in Hanover. Despite George's own infidelities, their marriage was dissolved, not on charges of adultery, but abandonment. Sophia was imprisoned at Arlden Castle in Cellar. Though she was granted access to the courtyard, allowed supervised carriage rides, and granted servants and an income, she would remain a prisoner for 32 years. Most painfully for Sophia, she was denied access to her father and her children, and forbidden to remarry. Such cruel terms would provoke a lifelong resentment between George and his son. George would of course continue to meet his mistresses. His preference for fat and complacent women, according to a contemporary, meant he had bad taste and a strong stomach. His principal mistress remained Milusina, with whom he would spend most of his evenings. In 1698, Ernest Augustus died. 
George became the Elector of Hanover. Yet three years later, a bigger prize was presented. Over in England, something of a succession crisis arose. With the current King William III childless and ailing, and his heir apparent Anne also childless and ailing, a new line of succession was desperately needed. With Catholics now barred from the throne, George's 71-year-old mother, as a granddaughter of James I, was the first Protestant in line to the English throne, bypassing no less than 52 Catholics. This placed George in a line of succession. Despite her age, Sophia was in good health when she was made heir upon the accession of Anne in 1702. Anne herself died in 1714. She had survived just a few weeks longer than Sophia. This meant George would ascend the now British throne. George was half aware of the considerable difference between the two roles. Elector of Hanover and King of what was now Great Britain. George was not enthralled by the prospect. He loved the flat German landscape and his country house. He was an autocratic ruler. His people were obedient and prepared to let him rule as he wished. He decided everything. Incredibly, any expenses over £13 required his personal sanction. He would now become a constitutional monarch. He would take on the most fractious, constitution-ridden country in Europe. Yet George was not put off entirely. He was unlikely to pass up the opportunity to enormously enhance his prestige among his fellow electors. Similarly to William of Orange, he would seek to exploit England's resources for his homeland. Britain in 1714 was one of the leading colonial powers, with extensive territories in North America, Africa, India and the Mediterranean. George, nevertheless, quite understandably, made his journey to London with a dose of trepidation. His arrival in London was greeted with relief rather than enthusiasm. He was older than his predecessor Anne. At 54, he was also the oldest person to ascend the British throne to that point. He spoke very little English, and due to Anne refusing to let the Hanoverians settle in England before her death, he was completely unaccustomed to the culture. He had only visited once, and had been wholly unimpressed. On the day of his coronation, riots broke out in Manchester, Leeds and Oxford, pleading for the restoration of the Stuarts. Banners mocking the German were displayed around the country. Yet relatively speaking, George's coronation on the 20th of October 1714 was greeted with general acceptance, albeit tepid. While William III was also a foreign king, he had an English mother, was fluent in the language, and was also married to an English steward. George, on the other hand, was unremittingly, resolutely German. With his wife safely locked up in Arden Castle, George invited Milusina to make the move. She was reluctant, fearing that the people of England, who she thought were accustomed to use their kings barbarously, might chop off the king's head within a fortnight. She only decided to go when she found out the king's other companion was going. She was Sophia von Kielmansegg, George's half-sister. 
It is not known the extent of her relationship with George. Nonetheless, with Milusina, she vied for the king's affection. They would play cards and cut paper with scissors with the king on alternate evenings. Described by young Horace Walpole, the son of prominent minister Robert Walpole, I remember as a boy being terrified at her enormous figure. Her fierce black eyes, large and rolling, between two lofty arched eyebrows. Two acres of cheeks spread with crimson, an ocean of neck that overflowed and was not distinguished from the lower part of her body, and no part restrained by stays. Together with the tall, stick-thin Milusina, they formed a bizarre double act and were the victims of intense press ribaldry, by whom they were nicknamed the Elephant and the Maypole, respectively. George had an unconventional hearty appetite for women. The press would claim that George's ugly whores would have found few clients in the brothels of Drury Lane. Lord Chesterfield claimed that no woman was amiss to George, if she was but willing to be very fat and have great breasts. To become his mistress, women had to strain to put on weight. Some succeeded, others burst. Along with the retinue of German ministers and chefs, George brought two Turkish servants called Mustafa and Mahomet, he had met during the Great Turkish War. Contemporaries would comment that the two servants had names like bad coughs. Rumours circulated that George kept them for his own pleasure. No evidence for such claims exists. Perhaps the strangest resident of a royal house arrived in the 1720s, Peter the Wild Boy. He had grown up in the woods in Hanover and had had no human contact since infancy, living an entirely feral existence. He couldn't speak and had no concept of reverence. This fascinated George. When he was introduced to the royal court, he scuttled off to the king on his arms and legs. He was mute, he didn't bow, nor wear clothes. Frequently pickpocketed and refused to eat anything that didn't grow on the forest floor. He was eventually put in the care of a yeoman farmer. Despite efforts, Peter never learned how to speak, but earned a huge degree of affection gaining celebrity status for the remainder of his life. Chief Whig, the Duke of Shrewsbury, tasked with ensuring a smooth transition of power, claimed not a mouse stirred against George in England, Ireland and Scotland. This did not mean there was no opposition, even if it wasn't immediately visible. The Jacobite Tories had openly attempted to administer a Jacobite succession under the son of James II, nicknamed the Great Pretender. In fact, Anne had been amenable to the idea, and had she lived just a few weeks longer, such a succession may have been sealed. Or at the very least, conflict would have ensued. It meant when George arrived at court, he immediately snubbed the Tory leaders. Not only had they tried to prevent his succession, they had also been responsible for the Peace Treaty of Utrecht, halting the Alliance's opportunity to crush France and had abandoned Hanover to continue to wage war with France for a further year. George would use his limited power 
to try and eliminate Tory influence. Despite the country being run by politicians and the monarch no longer making day-to-day decisions, the king could still appoint and dismiss people. He took advantage of his power and stripped the Duke of Ormond of his military posts and returned them to John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, an ardent Whig. He purged the army of its Jacobite officers and brought tighter control of the army. In March 1715, the Whigs won a huge electoral victory, sending the Tories into the political doldrums. They would be almost entirely excluded from office for 50 years. Britain would have a dominant party system. With the Jacobites failing to achieve its goals democratically, they would attempt to achieve their goals by force. In September 1715, six months after the crushing defeat of the Tories, the Earl of Mar raised the standard of James VIII and III at Braemar, Aberdeenshire in Scotland. The true King of Great Britain, James the Great Pretender, was due to arrive for his coronation in January 1716. Armed with 10,000 men, Mar attempted to take advantage of the reported disaffection among the populace. Small Jacobite forces gathered too in Lancashire and Northumberland. Henry St. John, the man who failed to orchestrate James's succession upon Anne's death, launched a propaganda campaign against the flight of hungry Hanoverian vultures. Riots spread across England. Panic set in in London. They had already attempted to prevent gatherings by passing the Riot Act just weeks earlier. By October, Mars' forces had doubled and had control of most of northern Scotland, except for Stirling Castle. His indecisiveness allowed the Duke of Argyll, Britain's commander, to increase his strength. Down in England, the small Jacobite forces were defeated at the Battle of Preston. Mar, who was awaiting James's arrival, failed to take Stirling Castle. The Jacobites were defeated the Battle of Sheriff Moor in November, despite their two to one advantage. Despite defeat, James arrived very late due to bad weather in December. The French were unwilling to support a usurpation. They were preoccupied with the recent death of their king, Louis XIV. The captured Jacobites were executed or sent as convicts to America, and James quietly returned overseas. The bulk of the force was marched through London. An onlooker described the scene. The mob insulted them terribly, carrying a warming pan before them. A reference to the conspiracy theory that claims James was not the true son of James II. They were shouting a thousand barbarous things, which were fired back in return with spirit. The king himself seemed indifferent to events, even attending a ball on the night six Scottish noblemen were executed. It seemed that while large sections of the British public held disdain for the Whigs and for the Hanoverians, this did not translate into active opposition, nor did they have a desire to see a Catholic king. The king settled into his new role as constitutional monarch, no longer an autocratic ruler. He was very aware of the cultural divide and was deeply conscious of prerogative. 
Anne had refused to allow the Hanoverians to settle in England before her death, so they had had no opportunity to acclimate. His lack of English meant he didn't attend meetings often. His English didn't improve significantly. When giving speeches, he would often read the first sentence before passing the speech on to a subordinate. George, in fact, took to speaking to the Dean of Salisbury, because he spoke German. Ministers who wished for George to acclimate decided to ban the Dean from the palace, telling the King that he had been killed by a horse. A few years later, George saw the Dean alive and well, leading to utter confusion. George's etiquette and habits were often in deep contrast to his predecessors. He never dined in state, but had his meals served in his apartments. He often travelled incognito because he disliked being out in public. When he issued guards with new uniforms, they refused to wear them on account of the dreadfully coarse cloth. He planted turnips in the gardens of St James's Palace, and during visits to the opera refused to use the royal box. This was not to say that George was not cultured. He was actively engaged in the Royal Society, and insisted on his children being inoculated against smallpox. He founded the University of Gottingen and the professorships in modern history at the Universities of Oxford and Cambridge to help train diplomats. He bought the library of John Moore at Cambridge and doubled his collection. He largely favoured Cambridge over the tourist Oxford. George, however, was often homesick. His visits to Hanover were restricted to just five visits during his reign. He would stay for up to six months at a time. While Anne had attended as many cabinet meetings as she could, George's absence had conferred a level of independence and status on the Whigs. The party, however, was far from united. Between the leading men of the period, Stanhope, Spencer, and Walpole and Townsend, there was deep division. At some cabinet meetings, they had to be restrained, throwing candlesticks at each other. This led to instability. In 1717, Townsend was dismissed due to dragging his feet over negotiations with the French. For George, he was not supporting Hanover enough. Then Walpole resigned. The country was henceforth ruled by Stanhope on domestic and Spencer on foreign affairs. The splintered Whigs, fearful of electoral defeat, passed the Septennial Act. Elections would be held every seven years, not three, which meant they could postpone the 1718 election to 1722. It bought them time to regroup. George still exercised some power during this period. He supported dissenters and halted a bill to castrate Irish Catholic priests caught proselytising. He also sheltered Voltaire, the great Enlightenment writer who had been exiled from France. George's main concern of this period, however, was his son, George Augustus. Their relationship was hugely fractious. The young George never forgave his father for imprisoning his mother. His father returned the animosity. During the King's trips abroad, the young George, instead of acting as regent, was appointed guardian of the realm and lieutenant, an ancient British title. It was an insult. It meant he couldn't fill positions, nor give royal assent to bills. It left him sidelined, embarrassed and deeply bitter. The final spark which led to estrangement 
came when the young George's son was baptised. The king insisted that the Duke of Newcastle be the godfather. Young George despised the man and publicly rebuked him. Young George refused to apologise for his outburst and he was expelled from St James's Palace along with his wife and barred from talking to the king. Young George's children remained with the king. When their newborn son fell ill, the king did allow his son and daughter-in-law to visit their child, who later died. Young George set up a new court at Leicester House. This new court was characterised as the royal court in waiting. The Whig schism benefited the young George, and he would court Whig opposition, as well as Tories, to his new political faction, now known as the Leicester House set. Members included the ousted Robert Walpole, and Charles Townsend. The young George was popular. He was an attractive character with a vivacious, intelligent wife. Where his father detested public pomp, the young George embraced it. He declared, I have not one drop of blood in my veins that is not English. The king was jealous of his son's popularity and the pair entered a PR war. While the king struggled to appear as a refined, attractive ruler, he could foster support elsewhere. He took advantage of his patronage of the great German Baroque composer, George Friedrich Handel. During warm summer evenings, Handel would perform on the banks of the River Thames to the delight of the king's guests. Though Handel's resistance in performing traditional Hanoverian music would privately irk the king, such royal scalps were beyond the reach of his disgruntled son. The king also built a menagerie of lions, tortoises and great snails. This was all a game of one-upmanship in this bizarre feud. In 1720, a shrewd Robert Walpole decided to engineer a reconciliation between father and son. For the sake of displaying unity with the public, the pair half-heartedly resolved some issues. Walpole and Townsend re-entered the ministry, despite George believing it was purely a scheme to regain power. The young George was still deprived of his children and barred from periods of regency. In 1717, an old enemy of Britain began to emerge as Europe's chief aggressor. Under the guidance of Giulio Alberoni, Philip V of Spain sought to regain land lost after the 1713 Peace of Utrecht in the closing months of the War of the Spanish Succession. The pair also hatched a plan to gain control of France by becoming the young Louis XV's regent. This triggered the actual regent, the Duke of Orleans, to form a triple alliance with Great Britain and the Dutch Republic to try to keep the Spanish in check. 
Yet, with a thriving economy, Alberoni was confident that the war could be funded. In 1717, the Spanish seized Sardinia from Habsburg, Austria, a move that saw no sign of foreign intervention. Spurred on, the Spanish then landed in Savoy-controlled Sicily in July 1718. Austria then joined the Triple Alliance to form a Quadruple Alliance. The Royal Navy was then dispatched and defeated the Spanish at the Battle of Cape Passaro in August. The French then sent an invasion force, catching the Spanish off guard and capturing the Basque region. The Spanish aimed to knock Britain out of the war. To do this, they hatched a plan with a mutual enemy, the Jacobites. A Jacobite Spanish invasion was planned. Under the exiled Duke of Ormond, 5,000 Spanish troops would land in southwest England and march to London. A smaller force of 300 men would land in Scotland to take Inverness. The invasion plan was a closely guarded secret, yet the French discovered the plan and alerted Britain, who were waiting for them. It wasn't the Royal Navy who defeated the invasion force, but the high winds and mountainous waves. It became known as the Protestant Wind. Reminiscent of the wind and waves that had wrecked the Spanish Armada over a century before. Again, the old pretender prepared to land in Britain, and again the mission would be fruitless. The smaller invasion fleet did manage to land in Scotland, by which point news of the failure of a much bigger invasion force to England had reached the Highland chiefs, who now did not want to risk their lives in joining a much reduced single Jacobite front. With just a thousand men, the Jacobites were defeated at Glenshiel. Some Jacobites retreated. The Spanish invaders were treated as prisoners of war and sent back to Spain, and the invasion ended with a whimper. Back on the continent, the war continued with mixed results on both sides. Eventually, it was Spain who relented. Alberoni was sacked, and Philip agreed to return all territories. Back home, Britain was faced with an economic crisis. In 1711, the South Sea Company was founded to consolidate and reduce national debt. The company was granted a monopoly to supply African slaves to the South Seas, in exchange for the company taking on the government's staggering debt. Their price of shares for the company rose tenfold in just five months. Frantic speculators paid inflated prices of the stock, leading to the eventual financial collapse in 1720, when profits from slave trading proved to be disappointing. Many public figures were ruined. Many ministers had lined their pockets. Even the royal house was linked with George's mistresses thought to be involved in speculation. Due to their intimate relationship with the king, they had been showered with gifts and shares to curry favour with the monarch. Many were accused of gross fraud. People lost trust in politicians and bankers. During the bitter aftermath of the revelations, a mob surrounded Sophia's carriage. The Chancellor of the Exchequer was imprisoned. The Postmaster General, too, was implicated. Under interrogation, he broke down, committing suicide on the eve of his trial. Bankers were eviscerated. 
They should be tied up in sacks filled with snakes and tipped into the murky Thames. With the government knee-deep in filth, a man was needed who was squeaky clean. Someone who had avoided all association with the South Sea bubble. Robert Walpole. He used his skill to wind the crisis down while preventing a total political and financial meltdown. He saved Stanhope, Spencer and even the King from direct implications. Yet his rival Whigs were now deeply tainted and had fallen from grace in dramatic fashion. Walpole emerged unchallenged. On the 3rd of April 1721, he was appointed First Lord of the Treasury, Chancellor of the Exchequer and Leader of the House of Commons. This is generally regarded as the moment Britain got its first Prime Minister. He would later be given a modest townhouse in a new housing development just off Whitehall on Downing Street. This became the official residence of all future Prime Ministers. Despite his misgivings, George knew that Walpole was indispensable. Walpole was a giant of British politics, in more ways than one. He was 20 stone and a heavy drinker. His magnetic personality was a significant reason why he was such an effective parliamentarian. His home, Horton Hall, in his home county of Norfolk, symbolised his power. He became known for his opulence, using only the finest architects and designers, and his homes were embellished with fine art. Horton Hall was hailed as the greatest house in the world. He had a challenging working relationship with the king, however. Walpole once said that he had had to govern the nation with bad Latin due to George's poor English. Walpole's policy was dictated by a long-standing observation. Let sleeping dogs lie. To avoid war at all costs and promote trade. Walpole's peace came to be regarded as a golden age, an age also characterised by growing political satire and the rise of liberalism. The philosophy of John Locke and others was gaining currency. Jacobitism looked dead. Despite a lack of personal loyalty, Robert Walpole's achievements in restoring confidence is seen as the greatest service to the House of Hanover. On the 3rd of November 1726, George's ex-wife, Sophia Dorothea, died in Alden Castle, where she had been confined for 32 years. George, still not at peace, forbade mourning in Hanover and in Britain, and for seven months she was denied burial. Finally, in January the following year, George ordered a discreet burial, void of all ceremony. In May 1727, George, alongside Milizina, visited Hanover. En route, he suffered a stroke and was taken to Osnabrück, to the room in which he was born. There, he died on the 11th of June, 1727, at the age of 67. Reactions at home were mixed, with one contemporary proclaiming, the devil has caught him by the throat at last. Most reacted in the same way to when he first arrived on the shores of Britain with indifference. In fact, there was no organised plan for his burial. The country had seemingly moved on already. He was eventually and fittingly buried at Lina Palace in Hanover. He was the last British monarch to be buried overseas. Following the Second World War, George was moved to his final resting place 
at Herrenhausen Garden. Described by Lord Chesterfield as an honest and dull German gentleman, unfit and unwilling to act the part of a king. He showed a very limited interest in British affairs, more interested than Hanover and his mistresses. It was perhaps for this very reason that his dynasty survived. His statesmen no longer danced to the king's tune. It was during his reign that Robert Walpole became the very first British Prime Minister. Parliament and the Royal House widened as distinct political entities. The King's attitude to the affairs of Britain allowed body politic to breathe and mature, and the Hanoverian dynasty endured. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for George II. You can follow us on Facebook at the Kings and Queens Podcast, Instagram Kings Queen what is it? Kings Queens Podcast, that's it. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, Kings Queens Pod. And you can send an email in if you've got a question to the Kings and Queens Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time. <laughs>